There it is. All right. Nick Quinton, Carl Orhoff. What's up, guys? Well, I'm in mid-sip, so I'll pause until Carl can say hi. I'm mid-sip, so I'll pause until Nick can say hi. I'm good. What's up, yo? What's up, everyone? Welcome to Here to Politics. I'm good. Uh, we got Nick and Carl here today in a, not really a debate, but just kind of a discussion on can women be pastors. Nick is convinced yes, and Carl would say no with a question mark. Uh, it's just going to be an informal debate slash conversation slash I really have no idea what's going to happen. Um, so we're going to go for about 55, 60 minutes-ish, and we'll have some questions at the end if you guys have questions. But, I mean, that's all we have to say. But I guess before we get into it, just give you guys a brief introduction. Just say a little bit about who you are, what you do. Okay. Um, I'll start. Um, my name is Carl Olhoff. I do TikTok sort of stuff. This short apologetics, theology, entertainment, stuff like that. Uh, yeah. I'm starting up a YouTube soon. Well, I've said that for the past three weeks. But, yeah, I'm a, I'm a child through and through. I'm a 20-year-old child. That's all you're going to get from me. Carl's also been trying to take the same English club test for the past two years and never even done it. So I, I wouldn't count on him on the YouTube channel in the next few weeks. So just saying that. Dude, you're Zach, just going to roast Zach, your boy. Held... <laughs> Zach, God doesn't hold our faults against us. Why do you hold mine against me? Dude, Let's don't admit that's a fault. That's giving the enemy ammunition. Yeah, Carl, come on. Who Zach has you? way more ammunition than than he would ever use. Hopefully, <laughs> me and Zach are like best friends in real life too. So oh, that's for those IRL. that don't know. Yeah. Well, I'm uh, I'm Nick Quint. I podcast uh, occasionally. I uh, am a uh, associate pastor out here in Southern California. And uh, I, I am a sleepy dad of a newborn coming up on five months old baby boy with my wife. So, yeah, that's who I am. Fun stuff, dude. All right, so we'll turn this over to you, Nick. Um, before you be it, I'd love to know who has smoother skin, your baby or Carl. But then after that, we'll start with you. You can give a case for uh, women as pastors, and we'll just kind of open up for conversation and be some fun. Okay. Well, uh my son has more gold in his skin. So he's got like that Mediterranean oliveness that's like really like, but he's got some of my pink in his face, which is kind of annoying. So it's like, I wish we could have gotten rid of that. But Carl's got the better tone. So uh, we'll have to give, give Nolan a chance to catch up. But when he's, when he's a child at 20, we'll, we'll revisit that question. So uh, I guess my very brief positive case is I think i don't see anywhere in scripture that posits a permanent ban on women being involved in we would say church leadership uh i, I try to avoid uh language of uh more specific titles because i don't think uh well for example I, I don't think we're really the american church is really or at least the evangelical church is kept up on new testament ecclesiology i think that's something that needs to be more explored we don't do church the way they did church and that's you know positive and negative but and so i use i try to use the language of women are not permanently banned on the basis of who they are from serving in the same positions that men would be and i i base this on 
uh, one, a understanding of the one or two prohibitionary texts that people um, interpret to exclude women from ministry, or at least ministerial leadership. Two, uh, I would base my second plank on the numerous women named who participate and uh, in active roles and even seem to be leadership roles in the Pauline churches specifically. Excuse me. And third, I would base it on kind of my understanding of New Testament theology as a whole, my theology of baptism, my theology of the spirit, my theology of calling and gifting. Um, and those three kind of strands enforce kind of what I think about it. And so I don't come at this from, you know, uh, I, I don't know what the right word would be. I don't care what the Bible says kind of thing. I, I very much care what the Bible says. The Bible, or at least how I interpret it, is what changed my mind. So. Uh, those three kind of strands uh, tie together for me to make my case, but I don't want to make so much of my case without knowing where Carl's coming from, and then we can kind of have the conversation about what we want to focus yeah. on. Absolutely, and you're going to have to forgive me because you were cutting out for literally like 70 to 80% of that. I heard like five sentences. So <laughs> if oh, you address, so if I address, if I like say something that directly contradicts what Nick just said, I'm not deaf. I just have crappy internet for now. But um, my basis on set, where I come from is that while women have a role to preach and while they're absolutely certainly called to preach the risen Christ, I, I see very little scriptural evidence and I see much more scriptural evidence pointing towards the fact that women can't hold the highest position in the local church body. And I mostly base that off of as um, God is the head of Christ, so Christ is the head of man, and man is the head, and man is the head of woman, that whole passage dynamic type thing. Um, yeah, I, I certainly agree that women do have a role to preach and a role in ministry as the church or in the church, because of course the first people to preach the risen Christ were women. And anyone that claims otherwise is biblically illiterate, at least in my understanding, but that's mostly where I come from and all that. And it most it's my attitude in this is that I don't know. I don't know the historical context. I don't know the, greek intricacies of such things so in my english translation and in my ignorance i'd rather side with what is more easily readable and what is more clearly communicated throughout scripture so if there is contextual evidence to suggest otherwise and if there's something that i'm missing i would definitely want to know but it's more a, it's an attitude of better safe than sorry is where i come from for the most part Okay, so uh, there's a lot there. Uh, you have in mind what it sounds like the First Corinthians 11 passage with the, um, and feel free to interrupt me if uh, if I cut out and I can stop and rephrase it and stuff like that. So just let me know um, where you have the language of head uh, being used to describe uh, what you're, it seems to be interpreting as a sense of. Uh, probably it's not even order. It's a it's a hierarchical ranking, rather God as over Christ versus, and you have that kind of chain. Is that kind of what you're thinking as, um, is kind of what you're getting at? Just so I'm understanding more clearly. I wouldn't say 
I wouldn't say hierarchy. I definitely, I would actually, I definitely would not say hierarchy because there is no such thing as a hierarchy within the Trinity. I'd rather say order of submission because we see Christ submitting to the will of the Father, man submitting to the will of Christ, and then women called to submit to to the husband. I think it's an order of submission rather than a strict hierarchy. So then if you think 1 Corinthians 11, that's the passage, if you think that is referring to women, or rather wives, and not women, then that text really is... I wouldn't say irrelevant because that's a it's a it's a disputed text, but there's a difference, of course, between being a wife and a woman, right? And so you could say it seems to me you could say if, if I were to adopt your perspective, I could say yes, my wife is to submit to me, um, and I think she is, but I, I interpret that in a more mutual sense. Um, but that still leaves women with the room to do all the sorts of same stuff. Do you get what I'm saying? I'm not saying I agree with it, but I'm saying. In, from an internal consistency point, you could say, uh, and Greg Kokel and others kind of take their ride, is they say that's for wives, that's a husband-wife relationship, not a, we might say, a male-female relationship. Does that make sense? I think you're in it. It's being wonky. No. Carl, come back. Well, I mean, I debate you, but I really have no opinion. You're wrong, Nick. Oh, okay. I'm fine with that. It, the debate's over. <laughs> oh, it's, it's all good. Um, uh, we So if I understand, so maybe I'll make Carl's point and then I'll, I'll respond to it. So I'll try and what's called steel man it. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, you have what's used in terms of headship language. God, presumably the father, is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man or a man. Uh, and then the man is the head of, in Carl's case, it seems like the wife. So what you have here is, uh, in Carl, it seems to me in Carl's perspective, and he can, of course, elaborate or tweak it or nuance or change his mind, seems to be about the husband-wife relationship, which looks something like Ephesians 5, which in my mind um, has no bearing on the question of can women be pastors, because that's a separate question, which means the entire context of 1 Corinthians 11 is about household order and not, we might say, ecclesiology. Um, I think that's a fair, that's a fair attack because people, some people go that route. Um, I don't, I think the, the big question is, and I'll, I'll restate this if, and when Carl comes back is the idea of, um, uh, he doesn't use the language of hierarchy. Um, so my, my question is, or rather, uh, okay, cool. Um, <laughs> He's back. Yeah, I think I say Nick almost just won by forfeit right there with Carl using oh the internet God. excuse to slide There's no out, such thing as winning in a discussion. No, <laughs> uh, there is no winner and loser. The only winner here is the one that gains the most knowledge. So I'll probably be winning anyway. Oh, then I'm cool with that. Uh, and so to recap, I so you see this, see that text is being about husband wife relationships, not we would say male female relationships. Was that kind okay. of? Is that what you were saying? Because you use the language of wife. And so I want to be clear on what you're getting at with that. Oh, um, well, let's look at what, it, what the actual word is. Could, like, I'd, I'd like to see what the actual word for that is. And so, so if it is wife, I'd like to say, yeah, it's then I meant, I meant to this wife. It is, if it is generally women, then I'd like to say. Well, in Greek, it's the same. It's gene uh, or uh, gene or gunakos. I forget exactly, which can be translated it's the same word for wife or, or woman. Um, 
it, it's okay. it's uh, all contextual. And so uh, that would be something, okay. I mean, and that's a debate and more, um, what's a good word? I don't want to say patriarchal, but that's te the technical definition. I don't, I think it's too pejorative. We'll say, um, because I don't like the complementarian angle because I am a complementarian. I, I believe the genders complement each other. That's the basis of the word. Um, what you have, and so the question then becomes, is this about husband-wife relationships? Which means it's a separate question. Uh, it doesn't mm -hmm. have any bearing on it. Um, or is it about a husband or male-female uh, relationships? And so um, I, think, I think the ESV, I'm not sure. Uh, I think ops for wives puts it in a footnote saying, or women or a woman, uh, it's more indefinite. Um, so if that's the case, how does that, how do you, let, let's say I'm right. Let's say it's indefinite. It could be uh, a wife or a woman um, mm -hmm. specific or not. How does that kind of play with what you're thinking? Does that like, what does that bring up for you? Cause I don't want to be like, bam, bam, bam. Like I want to actually know okay. like your thought process. Well, what that brings up then is the whole instance. Okay, so man, so the relationship of man to Christ, see, at least it seems to be parallel to the relationship of woman to man. In the same sense, like we are the body of Christ, we are the bride of Christ. So while the relationship between woman and Christ is, I guess, in the nature of stance before God, the same as man to Christ, it's a seems to be a different. Never mind. I'm getting off topic. But the relationship between man to Christ is the same as woman to man. We're the bride of Christ and such like that. So as man doesn't hold authority over Christ, as man isn't the authority over Christ, it seems that so so should woman not be the authority over man. Okay, so that brings up two separate questions. Um in Greek, and this is a very uh, disputed point, but so I'll, I'll say it as neutrally as I can without casting us. You've got the issue there of God being the head of Christ. And that, of course, invokes um, classically what's called subordinationist Christology. That is uh, semi-Arianism. And I'm not mm -hmm. saying that's what you're thinking or anything like that, but that's this yeah. is a classic text and interpretation that people have used. Yeah. Um, and the and the early fathers expressly reject seem to I wouldn't say mm -hmm. uniformly but largely expressly reject the we might say the authority understanding of what head means here. Instead, okay. you um, what see and this is the debated point. So most commentaries I could I could go and show you them, but uh, most commentators on the Greek text seem to be going toward a sense of what's called synecdoche. Why I can't talk. Uh, somatic synecdoche. So the idea of uh, the head, a piece representing the whole, like the tip of the spear representing the whole spear or okay. something like that. And that is used. And in Greek, the literature is literally uh, 95 to 97% of all occurrences of that word for head in Greek are this thing. It's, li okay. it's the literal physical head. Um, okay. It's used in a metaphoric sense, you know, but it's very rarely used. And so what Paul seems to be doing here is, is something you wouldn't say it's new, but it's trading off of a literal understanding, right? It's kind of building and playing with it. And Paul does this all over the place with words, right? He'll play with certain aspects of them, you know, but mm -hmm. 
the, the, the debate here, at least in scholarship, and I'm not saying this, you know, to say you're wrong or anything, but the debate is more about, is there a sense of preeminence, like maybe in terms of representation, you know, or is this a sense of, we might say source relationships, like, you know, the head of a river. And, and that's where you would get something like the idea of eternal generation. You know, the son proceeds from the father, which mm. classically is not about subordination or hierarchy or or anything like that. It's about, and the it would be about equality. The fact that in, in some sense, Jesus being the face of God or the image of the unseen God, him and that sort of kind of concept. And so the question then becomes, are we talking here about an order of procession or are we talking about something a little different in terms of relationality? Because I think you were right. And this is something that gets missed a lot. Is there, we are talking about some sort of relationship here, but without any sort of explicit demarcation of submission language, right? Like yielding or even um, uh, prepositions that would dictate something like overness, you know, being above mm -hmm. something, you know, head above, you know, and you do have one or two instances where head language is used in a metaphoric sense of over. Um, Christ is the head over all things, you know, mm -hmm. uh, in Ephesians, but that is different from his relationship with his body, you know, but Paul here seems to be trading off the idea of interdependence. And I think Paul gets that point. If we re keep reading into that, you have verses, um, I'm reading from the NRSV, not because I think it's the best translation. It's just the one that's up. You have, and the whole section is talking about veiling and unveiling and hair, and all those sorts of issues, which is its own complex question. But Paul says um, uh, in verse uh, seven and following for a man or husband, man or husband, um, ought not to have his head veiled since he is the image and reflection of God, but woman is the reflection of man. And so already there we have, Paul seems to be indicating that there is a difference between men and women. Mm -hmm. um, a man shouldn't wear a veil, but of course in that context, that probably has not to be too nasty about it, probably has some sort of sexual connotations. You know, man shouldn't, I want to be careful how I say this, man shouldn't present themselves as women. And Paul seems to say the corollary of women shouldn't present themselves as men. Men are men, women are women. That's kind of the logic of the passage, even for people who yeah. disagree with it. And so then you have the text keep saying, indeed, man was not made from woman, but woman from man, which just indicates we would say sequence, right? You know, Eve came from Adam's side, not his head, not his foot, but from his side. And then Paul says in verse nine, neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man, which in my thought is, yeah, that's that sounds like a pretty high place for women. She's created because man needed her is kind of the idea. Um, and then you have this really weird phrase of, for this reason, a woman ought to have authority on her head, literally in Greek, have authority on top of her head because of the angels. And we read the angels part and I just kind of go, I don't know what that means and no one knows, but, yeah. and I think kind of tying to what you were saying about relationality here, because I think that's the key word is, but in verses 11 through 12, you have this kind of, nevertheless in the Lord, woman is not independent or separate from man, nor man independent or separate from woman for just as woman come from men. So men comes from woman, but all things come from God. So you have kind of the, the circle is completed, right? You have that kind of logic, woman from man, man from woman, but everything is from God. And what seems to be in the passage is not a hierarchy or we might say an order. That's probably a more neutral word, like an order of persons. But what you have is you have different, Paul is trying to 
deal with the dialectic of differences. Men and women are, for Paul, different. They, they are just different. But what he's trying to suggest is that there's not a an order to them. There is order in the assembly in the sense of you're not allowed to, you know, jump around on the ceiling and walk around naked and all those sorts of things, which he yeah. talks about in chapter 14. And so I think that kind of at least brings out more, I think, what you're trying to get at, because I think you're trying to get away from the idea of men, male and female being kind of an amorphous kind of blobness where, you know, the distinctiveness of men and women don't matter. Because I think Paul very clearly is like, no, that don't veil your head. Don't wear your hair like this because you're a man. You do this, which has we, we would interpret culturally. But we get the idea, you know, all that sort of stuff. I don't know if that helps, but that's that's kind of how I see the passage going based on kind of what I, I think you're actually trying to get, or at least how I'm interpreting what you're like bringing with that kind of relationality. Um, I don't know if that helps. Um, by all means, push back. Tell me I'm wrong or agree with me and we can talk about something else. Oh no, did he free again? Oh, he froze. He's gone. Carl, you there? No, certainly. I definitely do agree. And I see you. I hear you typing. Wait, you can hear me? Yeah. Oh, there we go. All right. I was just, te I was texting Zach on my computer and my. The app that I like, the messages app, was blocking my actual video, oh, okay. so I couldn't see that I was back on. I was back up. <laughs> so yeah, um, no, certainly I agree with um, I I agree with what you said. I just don't see how, then how does that transfer into women holding the whole being able to hold the authority in the church? Like, would would you? Okay, I I'll, I won't I won't put those words in your mouth, but then. I'll ask you, can a woman hold the, I guess, lead pastor, the the lead, I guess, yeah, lead pastor role? Yeah, I think so. Um, I don't okay. necessarily get this from this text, although I get what I would call the principle of this text. So let me unpack that just so I'm not, um, so I don't sound as dumb as I just did. I don't think this text teaches that anyone can be a pastor. I don't think it has we might say church function or, or church titles in mind. But what I do see in Paul's here is talking about um, praying or prophesying. Uh, you know, uh, any man who prays or prophesies with something on his head disgraces his head, basically brings shame upon himself because the head head language in, in Jewish thought was a representation of the whole person, right? You know, um, I heaped ashes on my head, which basically means I'm, I'm, I am in great mourning, right? That kind of idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but then Paul says in the very next, but any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled disgraces her head. You know, basically she shames herself um, and stuff like that. And so Paul here, if we're taking, if we're going for pure ecclesiology, both men and women pray and prophesy here in this text together. The only difference is, is how you do it. And uh, the question then becomes, um, uh, how are you, and this is, gets into a more complex question of, of linguistics, but how you how you interrelate with one another. So for example, an idea uh, given to me by a, Jew, uh, a, a British theologian was um, because men, and he, he's an Old Testament guy, because men and women are both created in the image of God, we need to ordain both so we have the full image of God on display in our churches. And so the idea is that kind of complementariness. a woman brings something to a conversation that I don't. She brings insights that I don't. 
And so I think Paul has that sort of idea of both people here, men and women, are praying and prophesying. And there's no sense of, uh, for example, the man has um, preeminence in that sort of activity. They're both get, they're both basically said it, but Paul's point is not to teach ecclesiology. The point is to teach how this is how you interrelate with one another because you're fundamentally united together as, as a church, you know, and stuff like that. You're not independent or separate from each other, and you, neither one can claim preeminence because, as Paul says, so just as woman came for a man, so too man comes through woman. And so there's that, I, I guess the language would be cyclicality to, to male and femaleness, which could go either way with the husband-wife relationship. I don't think it really is husband-wife, but it could. If that's the case, then you have a cyclicality to it, you know. Um, but if you have, so I guess my, my, my answer is I don't see the text strictly teaching ecclesiology, but if we're, if we're looking for ecclesiology, both men and women pray and prophesy alongside each other. Paul's concern is how they do it in, a, in, a, in an ordered way together, not in the sense of male order over female order, but in a structured sense together. I don't know if that makes sense, but let me know what you think. I just want to interrupt here while Carl is logging to say thank you so much for praise Jesus for becoming a member. And we'll continue to praise Jesus intellectually if Carl's internet is working. You good, Carl? Am I good? Because <laughs> I guess he's not good because he froze. He's not good. Um, well, that gives me a chance to. Jonathan Depew, welcome. I did miss you very much. I really did. Oh, Jonathan's here. Yeah. I... And Randolph Richardson. Two Can't perfect. really tell if I'm good half the time. We have him. Right. Here, would it be easier? Let me. Uh, can I stop my cam? Would that help? Kind of the. I think it would just be Carl. If Carl stopped his cam. No. Um, your, yours wouldn't affect anything because the issue's on Carl's internet, and oh, I really, okay. I really want to see that beautiful face, Nick. You can't do that. To me. That's true. That's, That's true. Good. We don't need to see Carl. This is good. Okay. Is that uh, is that better? Yeah, you're coming through. So, um, yeah. What What are your thoughts? That's. I hope I answered your question. Uh, okay. Um, so you were talking about this passage, um, you're a British theologian saying how we should ordain women so that the full image of God is on display in the church. And I'm wondering how, isn't it fully possible and fully practical for the full image of God to be on display in the church if we don't ordain women? That seems to be a, a null and void point because women are serving in the church. The women are obviously active members in the church and they're very clearly displayed in the church as working members and as very very foundational members of the church so how how they women in order to display them as members of the church and you guys can't see the hands hand motions that i'm giving but as quote members as quote yeah, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I, I, I yeah. Um, there's a few things that could be said that could be said to that. First would be, and I think uh, inspiring philosophy made this point, and of course it's not in, uh, uh, new to him. I think John Walton made it. Um, if we take, I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, inspiring philosophy's views on Genesis, the the the, the Genesis one, right? That it's a temple inauguration kind of idea, right? I can't see you, Carl, so I'll just need you to say yes or no or something sure. like that. Sure. Okay. We'll go for it, yeah. Okay. And so basically, the, really, yeah. 
Okay, so brief brief breakdown. It doesn't mean Walton's accepted across the board, but I think it's a good reading. Is that what you have in Genesis chapter one is the inauguration of a cosmic temple. Uh, and the idea being, uh, I don't know if it's exilic or post-exilic, the person writing this has kind of the idea, writing Genesis one, has this idea where the creational aspects of God mirror a lot of imagery and 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 ideas found in temple inaugurations in the ancient Near East, dedications to the to the the things created by the gods, right? And here you have uh, Moses or whoever wrote Genesis, um, basically following that that idea. So you have seven, you know, the seven days. You have the cosmos being constructed and built, and in Genesis 1, 26, 27, you have both in the image of God, uh, he created them male and female. And of course, and the question that, or at least the issue there is when image is used in uh, the Hebrew Bible or the first Testament and in the new Testament, it doesn't, we, we tend to think of it in terms of agency. We're given it. It's kind of like we, it's, it's our rationality. It's our seat of emotions. It's, um, you know, it's it's very metaphysical, right? We, we tend to interpret it that way. Um, what that means in the ancient Near East and in Paul's idea is not that. It's the idea of representation. So uh, the human person, in this case, male and female, or Adam and Eve, uh, are called the made in the image of God. That is, they represent God to the rest of creation as priests is basically the idea. And, and Hebrews, or not Hebrews, Peter uh, talks about this. I can't remember exactly which, I think it's First Peter 1, 9, 2, or 2, 9, where it talks about uh, the priesthood. You know, we're priesthood of all believers kind of idea for Baptists. And so the idea to get at the heart of your question is um, having members that are excluded from that on the basis of, of, of that, of, of say their gender, um, doesn't seem to comport with the biblical evidence where both male and female at least in the garden and also in, in elements of the New Testament, uh, stand together, like we would say, side by side, not here or here. They stand together in representing God to the people. And if that's the case, then the question becomes, are not, um, the question then, bec or rather the, the issue then becomes, how do we represent the image of God in our churches and are we doing it well? And I would say we're not doing it well by not ordaining women to serve alongside men, or, you know, I don't have a problem with a lead pastor who's a woman. I serve under a lead pastor who's a woman. Um, I think the, the best model is you have men and women working together. Um, uh, and if we go by the Genesis model, working together to participate in the building of God's kingdom together. And so I, I think having both their mimics or rather uh, flows naturally out of a biblical theology of priesthood and also of creation where both male and female together represent the image of God alongside each other. And they both exercise dominion over creation. They are both given the command to be fruitful and multiply and all those sorts of things. Both all the commands are given to both of them and nowhere in there is there kind of an additional set of authority given to the man or order given to the man. You have, we might say complementarity, not complementarianism, but complementarity as Adam and Eve work together, both as the image of God to represent God to all of creation. And that's, I would argue, the ideal of, of biblical theology. We go back to Eden. We go back to what God was doing. And that's how the book of Revelation ends, is we go back to that Edenic paradise of what God is doing. And that's the whole new Jerusalem, the whole city coming down, and the tree of life, and the rivers, and all that sort of stuff. 
And so I think taking all that together me kind of gives us a biblical theological perspective on why the ordination of women to the pastorate or whatever, whatever, depending on which ecclesiology, when I say the pastorate, in my context, that's the highest level of authority, you know, so bishop, call, call it whatever you want. Um, so uh, the inclusion of women in that for their ordination purposes is, I think, a beautiful imagery that corresponds very well to the biblical imagery of priesthood. So I don't know, I think that may be a lot more than what your question asked, but I wanted to kind of build a case versus just kind of just saying a proof text. Cause I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think it's just too easy to proof text the Bible on any sort of issue, whatever we're talking about. So hopefully that at least sort of addresses your kind of concern. And I think it's a valid one. Absolutely. It does. Um, something so just getting into my whole, like, my main objection to this whole thing comes from a better safe than sorry perspective. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that does stem from the whole ideal of male leadership is like the, should the male be the leader in the family? And then if the church is the family of God, shouldn't then man be the leader of said family as well. And I don't know if you could address that, speak into that. I don't know if you know what I'm asking better than I know what I'm asking, but yeah. No. And it's a, it's a good question. Um, so and that and that actually kind of builds off what we we're talking about earlier with uh, the head Christ, God and Christ head language, right? You remember that? Mm -hmm. um, so there are two. I think there's a big problem with the analogy is that um, if we are to see the interworkings of the Trinity involved in our daily life, that does that kind of sound kind of where you're coming from? I don't want to misrepresent that the Trinity, uh, God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and that orderedness has has a has a basically for lack of a better word it's called social trinitarianism and that is that the trinity father son and spirit ha dictates a social agenda in our church and that of course can okay. lead in a lot of different ways you know liberal theologians love it for obvious reasons very conservative theologians love it for the same sort of obvious reasons um my response to that is i don't accept the premise and i'm not saying you do i'm saying i know you're thinking and processing it but something to think about would be, I don't think that the Trinity is a model for human relationships. Okay. But what I do see is um, activity on the part of the Son and the Spirit and modeling human behavior. Does that make sense? So I, I don't see it in terms of ecclesiology. I see it in terms of ethics. But okay. what I do... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I just, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure where this is lining up. Um, I think I, I may have miscommunicated my question, but like the bit, like it, the bib, I just said the bibble. Wow. Okay. <laughs> the Bible, it seems clear to me that man is the spiritual leader of the family. Like, is that right? Is that wrong? You can't see my face. So you can't see my expressions. No, but sure. Um, I, I don't see the word spiritual leader being used to describe the husband's role. The closest I see uh, and I'm not saying people can't get that idea. Like I'm not saying people are irrational or stupid or making stuff up or anything like that. What I see in Ephesians five, and that's probably the text you have in mind, um, for that idea of, of spiritual leaderness. Um, if you want a more in-depth conversation, I had the same conversation. I had a similar conversation with Zach where I kind of walked through the passage a while back. I don't remember exactly. I think it was, is the new Testament sexist or something like that. I think I kind of went through the, the whole thing verse by verse. Um, I don't want to do that now because I, I that's not fun conversation. But what I see in that passage is uh, one in verse 21, a model for, and this is husband-wife relationships, 
uh, a model for both yielding and submission to one another in the fear of Christ, or rather in the fear mm -hmm. of God. And that extends to, and if that itself is already a radical statement, the fact that both husband and wife, and I'm not looking at the chat right yeah. now, Zach, I'm, I'm not keeping any look on it. No, you're all good. You're all good. Okay. Uh -huh. Got it. What I see there in Ephesians 5 is first a mutual yielding to one another. And how does that look? Because if we look at ancient Jewish literature and Greco-Roman literature, nowhere that I've seen is a man, or we would say a husband in this case, a husband told to submit to his wife. There's, I can't find a single instance. Wives everywhere are told to submit to their husbands, even to abuse and all that sort of stuff. For example, mm -hmm. a wife is supposed to take her husband's religion if they're different religions and she gets married to him. So in Ephesians 5 verse 21, we have that submit to one another in reverence for Christ. And already every man in the audience is like, when Paul's read or whoever's reading it, reads it for Paul or yeah. reads it, is wait a second. And then Paul, it, and I think what Paul does here rhetorically is quite powerful. And so it might challenge kind of that idea you're, you have. I don't know if it does. I think it does, but let's play this out. Verses 22 through 24 are not exceptional in what they say about women. You, this is how you submit. And the language of head there corresponds to body imagery. So it's not about, um, we would say, authority relations or order, but it's about a head-body symmetry. And we have there, um, and I, I can read it. Uh, let me pull it up real quick because I, you know, far be it for me to misstate the word of God. So uh, wives to your own husbands as you are to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. Uh, and the body of which he is the savior. That's that final phrase, the body of which he is the savior, is mm -hmm. in direct apposition to Christ is the head of the church, which means Christ is the head of the church is a statement, and the body of which he is the savior clarifies what it means that Christ is head of the church. It means he's savior. He's the one who delivers because it's contingent on that head-body metaphor. And it, verse 24 says, just as the church uh, subjects itself to Christ, so too wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. So uh, you have there kind of a standard call for subordination. But Paul mm -hmm. doesn't tell us what that looks like. The, the women in that culture know what it looks like. He doesn't have to define what that is. But what Paul does in verse, and my friends love to say verse 25 is radical. I think it is radical, but not for the same reason. I think it's radical because... Because a man in that culture wouldn't have any idea of what it's like to submit to his wife, Paul has to tell him what it looks like. Here's what mutual submission in verse 21, being subject to each other out of reverence for Christ, actually looks like. It's called loving your wife just as Christ gave loved the church and gave himself up or over for her, sacrificial, dyingness, in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. That washing of water by the word, that's a play on, you know, as I mentioned, Paul likes to play with words. That's a play on the idea of women's work, domestic stuff, you know, you do in households. As to present the church to himself in splendor without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind, yes, so that she may be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives just as they do their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And so what mutual submission looks like to the man who has all the power and all the relationships looks like giving it up you love your wife just as you love yourself you give up your everything for the sake of your wife and what that looks like in a domestic context at least in that context although it could look like it in our context is is doing what she does understanding what she has to do in that context right the washing of things the cleaning the cooking all that sort of stuff paul is basically saying here's you see what she does for you you know, he, he's trading on household. She, what she does for you, 
you have to do the same thing. That's what it looks like to be the head, the giver of life, right? That's what it looks like to be self-sacrificial. And so yeah. while someone could say there's an order here, I don't think there is because I think Paul effectively undermines that. What Paul is basically getting at, I think, is here is how two people in a culture where men have all the power over their wives, I mean, legally, I mean, even spiritually, all that sort of stuff. Here is how the husband submits to his wife. It is he loves her to the point of death. He gives up everything for her. He does. He looks at her example, you know, cleaning, washing, splendor and blemishes. You know, that's food language. That's all that sort of stuff. And in the same way, you love your wife as you love your own body. You're to see your wife as part of yourself, that kind of one fleshness idea, right? Mm -hmm. And and Paul, of course, doesn't explain what it all looks like because he basically pivots to this is a great mystery and I'm applying it to Christ and the church at the end of the chapter. It's like, oh, could you have spent maybe another chapter actually telling us more? You know, but yeah. I think that theological principle of self-emptying is a great model for what it means to be in mutual submission to one another. And I think in that context, the husband giving up of himself of everything is a great is the greatest act of submission you could ever do. I mean, it's what Christ did. You know, Christ literally gave up everything for the sake of, of humanity, of, of fallen humanity. And so I don't think it means that women can't give up for themselves. In fact, that's kind of all implied in verse in the earlier parts, you know, be, being submissive. That's what it looks like, you know. But Paul has to, I mean, for someone who doesn't know what it's like, you know, it's, it's like, you know, for me, you know, when I got married, right, I read this passage and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm in charge. And my wife's like, well, read it again. What are you supposed to do? And I'm like, oh, this is the greatest expression of love I could ever do. And so to kind of cheapen the text, and I use that term forcefully, to cheapen the text to make about who's in charge, well, when it's really Christ who's in charge of everything as the cosmic Lord, is to basically kind of make the text almost look like, I call it Homer Simpson hermeneutics, you know, where the man puts his feet up and it's like, no, you literally to give up everything for the sake of your mm -hmm. wife. And I think... If we look at it that way and bring in the context of, you know, what it means to be a Greco-Roman woman and a Jewish woman and all that sort of stuff and hearing a Jewish man or look, imagine what a Jewish man would say to this or a Greco-Roman man. Mm -hmm. um, I think it really challenges everyone like yeah. egalitarians. It challenges compliment. It challenges every Christian to basically be like, how do you be more like Jesus in a relationship? Here's an example. You yield to your husband. Here's an example. This is how you yield to your wife. You love her by giving up everything for her. And of course, I'm not saying in an abusive context that applies. Uh, obviously, I'm making that, you know, I, you don't submit to like evil things like that. But in in giving up of yourself for one another, I think that is the the theological vision grammatically and contextually of what Paul's getting at. And I think that because because that'll that's that'll challenge everyone. It's not just a simple, oh, it's nice. It's like, no, here's how this works in a fallen world. Uh, and we haven't even talked about another text that is, I think, far more radical when it comes to husband-wife relationships. But does that kind of at least give some sense of where, where I'm coming from and, and why, um, why while I don't go the full route of, you know, oh, this text doesn't have anything to say, I'm like, oh, I think this text says everything. I think this text is beautiful. So I don't know if that yeah. helps answer your question, but. No, it's, I, th I think we're, like, I see, I see where you're coming from. Like, I definitely understand that whole concept of dying to yourself so that you can you know present your wife as holy blameless unto yourself yeah uh, i i'm fully with you on that but 
the thing that I just can't seem to rectify is that it says wives submit to your husbands. And so husbands love your wives like that. It, it, are those the same words or are they different words? Because it seems very complimentary in, in that sense. And I know you obviously are complimentary and you said so, but I just, I can't see that as working to get, I, can, I see that as working together rather than working in the same way. Like each, each command in this is to work with the other person and to do exactly what you said but rather instead of working in the same way with each other, working in different ways together. Uh, if I understand what you're saying, then the text, the verse, verse 21, be subject to one another is the same word for wives. Uh, wives, be, although if we look at it in Greek, the verse 21 is be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. There's no actual verb in verse 22. Um, it's, an, it's an inferred verb from verse 21. Um, okay. So it would read something like, off the top of my head, I don't have the text in front of me. Be subject to one another out of fear of Christ or the reverence for Christ. Wives to your own husbands as you would to the Lord. So it's an inferred verb, which which basically tells us Paul is dragging verse 21 into verse 22 and the rest of the passage. So that's where I'm coming from with why I think there's mutuality uh, or we would call mutual submission here. Because uh, both being subject to one another out of reverence for Christ doesn't mean wives. It means wives and husbands. And hence okay. why the explanation of wives or husbands loving their wives is an expression of mutual submission of the mutual yielding to one another um maybe that helps okay. clarify because verse 21 i think is is key and if yeah and if, yeah so and that, that's that what I was, that's that's what i was missing out on yeah Def definitely um, okay and it doesn't so, mean yeah, what yeah, go ahead I, I was just gonna say so what you're saying like from like verse 22 20 to 25 and all that stuff is more the practical application of the sort of theological statement that is verse 21. I think that's I think that's a fair way. I would I would nuance it just a bit. I would say verse 21 yeah. provides the lens by which we view everything else. Okay. Um, and okay. we can even see that if we go um, for example into chapter six where you have you know children obey your parents and the Lord. Um, and it even uses language of, you know, uh, it even there's mutuality there, you know, children obey your parents and the Lord and gives kind of reasons why, you know, so that it may be well with you. And it even gives an injunction to fathers or even I think the, the, the language in Greek is a little more inclusive. I think it means parents, but let's say it's fathers. Fathers don't provoke your children to anger. So there's that kind of reciprocity there. It's like it's not just a strict children obey your parents and there's no word to anyone else. You know, it actually says to the person in charge, for lack of a better word, don't act like this way. Right. Basically, Paul's like, children, do this. Also, the also the the man uh, or the, uh, the the father figure. Um, here's how you show respect and deference. Right. Don't provoke your children to anger, you know, but bring them up in discipline and instruction versus being provoking or, or a domineering. And even with slaves, you know, you have the language slaves obey your earthly masters, which everyone's like, oh, I'm like, yeah, ooh, yeah, yeah. We'll talk later. We can talk maybe some other time about slavery in the New Testament. But even here, slaves obey your earthly masters. And verse nine and masters do the same to them. Get, show them no partiality because you both know that you have a same master in heaven. So while Paul is not upending the slave structure, because I don't know how he could, he is basically saying, here's a way of transforming this, 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 this relationship based on something evil. You know, it's not baptizing slavery in, in Christ and being like, oh, it's good. It's here's how we live in a fallen world. And verse and chapter five kind of cha cha challenges that because if we look at Jewish literature, right? Uh, household codes, right? You know, 
um, you know, here's how you order your house kind of language. Plato and Aristotle have them. Um, not a lot of Jewish literature does, but some do. In every single one of them, the man is addressed. There's no word to wives, children, or slaves or anything. It's just telling the man what to do. But Paul in verse 22 of, five, of chapter 5, verse 22, begins with wives, actually tells the wives, here's what you can do. And he also addresses children. Here's what children can do. Here's what slaves can do. So already by addressing the, we might say the subordinate party, he's elevating them in a position rhetorically, you know, because he could just say husbands do this, or it would, it would just be the men of the house do this, you know, make your wives submit to you, make your children obey you, make your slaves obey you. But he doesn't do that. He addresses the party that everyone least expects and no one would address. And that's why I'm like, this is such a radical text because it, undercuts all this sort of stuff we bring to it by basically saying, here is how you live in harmony with one another. Here's how you submit to one another. Um, it's not to say husband-wife relationships are on par with slaves and masters and, and children and all that. It's, it's not the same. But that principle of yielding to one another is profoundly expressed in the, in the husband-wife relationship, and it carries over into, into the other texts. And so I, I think this text is, it challenges everyone. I just, I, don't, I can't get past that. It's just, I'm reading it now and I'm getting goosebumps, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's kind of where, uh, why I think the text doesn't really get into the idea of who's in charge. It basically says to the person in charge, here's how you give it up for the sake of the people you love. So it's not about leadership um, or anything like that. It's about self-givingness. And we need to be careful of kind of, and I did this too, is kind of using modern language in a text that doesn't have that modern language in mind. And I want to be careful with how I say that because I do believe, for example, that, you know, the, the Trinity is biblical. You won't find the word Trinity in the Bible, but the Trinity is biblical. But with this, we need to be careful of kind of bringing that assumption in of who's spiritually in charge when the text doesn't use that sort of, that idea I don't see as coordinating with the text at all. Um, rather, it's about mutual submission and yielding to one another. And I'm sorry, Zach, I probably should address it. We should probably include you in this. You look kind of so bored right now. No, so no, you're good. I just got caught up in something else. So no, you're all good, bro. I'm okay. happy listening to you too. Go for it. You're all good. Don't no, worry about back, me. back to you, Carl. I'm sorry for talking so much. Go for it. Oh no, absolutely. Um Okay, so what you what you said that like obviously the passage in First Timothy, we have to address this at some point. It's yeah like blatant. But just the what you what you just said there about not apl about applying this to what it specifically addresses, not applying it to something that it doesn't address. Like, can can we take that same attitude into First Timothy? Um, no. Um, uh, really? I, I, Why not? No, because I think what ha what's happening in One Timothy is something completely different contextually. I see okay. One Timothy. Um, well, uh, in the very beginning, Paul is addressing what might be called heretical teaching and dissension. You mm -hmm. don't, but but you don't have that same dissension or heresy in Ephesians. Ephesians okay. is the closest thing you get in the Pauline corpus to a, a nice letter, because it's not like Galatians where you know he's got the knives out and he's going at people's throats and stuff like that. And the pastorals, he's battling with the heretics and all of that. Ephesians is very positive. It's very constructive. You know, um, you know, uh, the dividing wall of hostility has been brought down, uh, and all these. Thessalonians. Uh, Thessalonians. Is that not Pauline corpus? 
Oh, Thessalonians. Yeah, I think Paul wrote all all thirteen epistles. Um, yeah, I'm okay, very, yeah. I have varying degrees of certainty about some of them, but yeah. I yeah I think the I mean Thess Second Thessalonians he's very much you know knives I mean yeah. he's very much knives out. But with Ephesians you don't have that. You have a very constructive, okay. very positive articulation of. I mean, there a famous theologian called Ephesians the quintessence of Paulinism. Everything that you want to know about Paul you find in Ephesians, which I'm like that's messed up, but also it's also kind of true in some sense. So <laughs> that was FF Bruce, by the way. Here and just say that we probably have about like seven, eight minutes before we can hit a couple questions, just so you guys know. Okay. So Carl, lead so, away. All right. By all means. Um, so actually, I'm actually quite, I'm familiar with the context of 1 Timothy. So I'm not, I'm not really, I'm not going to use, try and use that passage as a whole, as an argument against this. So honestly, at this point, I'd be comfortable going to questions because every, everything that I've had is that we've discussed and while I'm, I'm not fully convinced of women as being able to have the head authority in the church, I would never expect myself to be convinced after an hour conversation. So, but I well, definitely be. thank Nick for yeah, I definitely thank Nick for bringing to light some different things to think about and answering some difficult questions that I had. Yeah, if we yeah. want to move to uh, the questions, I'm cool with that. Um, uh, yeah, if someone has further questions on 1 Timothy or Carl or anyone wants to just message me on Twitter, um, do it in a DM because I, I don't like having conversations on Twitter like that because then people get crazy and everyone can see it and then everyone jumps in and it becomes a it, it, Twitter becomes like cow's guts. And for those of you who've worked on a farm, that's exactly what it is. So uh, if anyone has any questions or want to know where I think about or Carl wants to reach out to me on 1 Timothy, I've got lots and lots and lots and lots of thoughts, unfortunately. So but yeah, if I want to go to questions, that's cool. All right, there's, there's a few. It won't take super long. Carl's a boomer. He doesn't have Twitter. Uh, Jim Kirkham, this is more of a statement, but he wanted your reaction, Nick. I know, obviously, we, I did an interview with you as New Testament sexist. He's probably going to cover a lot more ground than you will here answering this. Uh, but he says, Paul makes it clear that a woman shouldn't teach or assume authority over a man. He quotes 1 Timothy 2.12. And in both 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, when speaking of the bishop, it is the husband of one wife. So two quick responses. One concerning 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Um in academic complementarian literature, um, they don't accept that argument. Uh, Douglas Moo, uh, Tom Schreiner, a lot of the major proponents of complementarianism basically say, and I'm paraphrasing, um, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, the phrase husband of one wife is reference to uh, polygamy and not a reference to um, be, must be a man with one wife. They view the set the phrase as a set idiomatic phrase referring to, and they find this in Josephus and other literature, referring to the fact that you are not allowed to have more than one wife. It's not dictating the gender of who's in charge or the, the eldership or whatever we want to, however we want to define that. And so that's not me, the egalitarian, making that point. That's Douglas Moo and Thomas Schreiner, as well as a few others. They basically go, we have to go to 1 Timothy 2 in order to basically argue our point. We can't go to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. So um, I, I would just make that point, just for the sake of keeping this as concise as possible. The second thing I would make point is... Um, Every every egalitarian, complementarian, whoever you are, whenever you go to 1 Timothy 2, there are about eight or nine exegetical factors that must be decided before you even begin to articulate what you think the passage is saying. Because you first have to determine what the passage is actually saying and what the words actually are, because there's a lot of words in that passage, specifically in the pastorals, that are used only once and they're used in different ways. And so there's a lot of exegetical disputes to be had before we even just say it is clear. As a 
for example, um, my complementarian friends don't say that. They will not, you will not find an educated complementarian saying 1 Timothy 2 is clear. That doesn't mean they don't have thoughts on it or they haven't concluded something very strongly, but it is not on its own a clear text based on the Greek syntax and based on uh, lexemes and all that sort of stuff in there and how words are used. The crucial debate that is had there is about what the word assume authority translated there is. Um, is it a sense of neutral authority, like uh, authority as a positive thing, or is Paul prohibiting the abuse of something? The fact that Philo, a contemporary of Paul in some sense, uses the same word group to describe the Cain-Abel relationship when Cain kills Abel tells us, uh, at least to some extent if we're using that, uh, that this is not about having authority. It's about the nature of the relationship again. And that suggests that 1 Timothy 2.12 is forbidding women to act in would say the same way that Cain acted over Abel. If we're taking the Philo example, and I have an academic article that I'm sending around right now uh, that actually argues that point very strongly. Um, and so I, I would object to the idea that it's clear um, because when I look at 1 Timothy 2.12, I've changed my mind on that text, on details in that text a dozen times. It is not a clear passage. And that doesn't mean it's not applicable. doesn't mean it's not God's word. But for all of us to say any text of scripture is clear when we are all debating the very thing that we're talking about, it's just not a, it's not a way to treat scripture with the respect it has earned as God's holy and errant word. So that's what I would say as briefly as I can. Sorry, that was still too long. I need to work on that. You're all good, dude. Uh, we've got a really tough question here in A2D2 who says, I was going to ask if Zach and Carl even knew who Homer Simpson was, but I guess that show is still on. <laughs> and Nick is gone. Right. I really, I've never watched The Simpsons. I, guess I'm just... I wasn't allowed to until I was 18. So I have watched y'all, like y'all have Disney Plus. Y'all have to have seen The Simpsons. Oh my! I don't gosh. think I have Disney. I don't have Disney Plus. The only the only part of The Simpsons that I've seen is them um, all the conspiracy theories that they've predicted. Oh my gosh! Donald Trump. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. It's just it's so funny to me. I think in a deba- if I ever debate again, proof of prophecy, I'm just going to use The Simpsons instead of like getting like medical. Do records. it! I dare I'm- you. Please do it. All you need to do is screen share and put up that one shot of Donald Trump and. That'd be quote. actually kind of. That'd be funny. It'd be, it wouldn't be something serious, but it'd be kind of funny. Uh, Jonathan Depew says, uh, "Question for Nick and Carl, if he wants, how Ooh. might Paul's eschatol- eschatol- eschatological? Oh my goodness! Um, expectations in Ephesians, Colossians shed light on the hostile. My, my pronunciation is terrible. He says, "Might Paul see this as a temporary ordering stru- temporary ordering structure?" Carl, I'm just going to say this. I'm not going to, I don't know what half these words mean, so I won't weigh in on it. <laughs> um, it's a good question. Um, you do on one sense have, uh, okay. So there's, there's two or three things in there. Um, I, there are, there's, I don't think Paul had such an imminent expectation of the end as some scholars do. Um, and that I'm just saying that because John knows what I mean, and a few other folks listening probably know what I mean. It's a very nerdy point, so I won't belabor it too much. Um, The fact that um, Paul's eschatological, I think John means apocalyptic, let's go, John, Uh, apocalyptic expectations in Ephesians and Colossians. Yeah, you can have a sense in which this is how Paul conceived of the world being structured or ordered for a specific period of time. Uh, I think you get that more obviously with how Paul treated the issue of slavery and say, for example, the, uh, the epistle to Philemon, which 
if you want to understand Paul, you go to Philemon, you don't go to Romans, I'm just saying. Um, so I think it might play a part of it. The only issue I have with that, um, while I'm willing to accept it, or at least modify it and play with it, is I don't think most people that uh, don't affirm, we would say, the ordination of women will find that route to be accept, uh, acceptable or helpful. Not because it's false, but because it will, saying it on its face first, everyone will just lose their mind. Uh, really certain people will lose their mind. But also it will, it's it's a question about essentially theological epistemology. And that's that's a question where I think a lot of people just, they check out. Um, and But I, I think Paul had some sense of it, but I'm not sure to what extent. Uh, at least in Ephesians, you probably get that. Well, actually, no, Colossians, Colossians 3, you get it. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's some expectation there. Um, but uh, how, how it works out, uh, well, as we all know, we're living it, so... A uh, few more questions here, but I can't get them on the live chat because uh, my StreamYard chat's way behind. Uh, but Randolph Richardson, what's up, Randolph, says, it's a question for both of you guys. He says, since Matthew 19, 26 states, with God, all things are possible, does that support the idea that women can be co competent pastors? I wouldn't make that argument. Go ahead, Carl. I would, def I would definitely not make that argument as well. Obviously, the contextual, like, the contextual evidence to that states Jesus is talking more about salvation and as to who can be saved and who can't be saved. He's not speaking as to whether or not God will contradict himself, which is a matter of what we're talking about, because like that's the whole premise of this um, debate is whether or not whether or not it would be a contradiction to claim women can be pastors in light of these passages. So that's not what Jesus is talking about at all in this topic in this statement um i mean i absolutely it's possible for a non-christian woman to claim to be a pastor absolutely it's possible for that to happen do i think it's or it would be or such that it, it would have the blessing of god in it no not at all so yeah i'll let nick i'll hand that off to nick real quick let him tear it apart well i i, I just don't well, I, I agree with you. I think there are texts that are more obvious and more applicable than that. I I, I don't like gen, uh, indefinite treating Jesus's language as indefinite statements without some sort of contextual analysis. Um, I mean, if someone wanted to use it, I mean, if you know, fine, whatever. But I, I think there's a much stronger exegetical and biblical case to be made for the inclusion of women to the pastorate or ordination than going to that text i mean you could you would i would i don't know if we if i were going to build a positive case that's not the first place i would go that's not the second third or tenth or twelfth place either another question here from praise jesus can't put on the screen but he says um why are women allowed to be prophets but not to teach isn't prophesying a form of teaching oh i see what he's saying if you want to go carl go for it i'm, I'm i have thoughts um yeah i'll let you, you go first i'll okay. comment anything that comes okay. to mind so and this is uh and this is um something a lot of my complementarian friends will grant as probably one of the strongest arguments in favor of egalitarianism i don't know if it is i think it's strong but not the strongest the idea that prophecy is the closest equivalent from the first century to the 20 first century um that pastor it is the pastor it is um what i see going on with how paul treats prophets 
and apostles and teachers and all of that. Um, one in all three instances where he addresses the kind of that that not that chiastic chain the um, the sequence of of offices given if we're calling them offices um, that's a little formal but uh, Romans twelve uh, you have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us prophecy and proportion to faith ministry and ministering the teacher and teaching the exhorter and exhortation the giver and generosity the leader and diligence the compassionate and cheerfulness just to give an example of Romans twelve. Right there, you don't. You'll notice there's no two things. There's two things. One, there's no reference to the we might say the gender of a person who has these gifts. It's laid open to the whole church, and every slave woman or child or man hearing that would ultimately find, oh, we have gifts that may correspond to this. Um, and the same thing would be said of Second Corinthians or First Corinthians twelve. You know, the gifts of the spirit. You know, spiritual gifts. You know, one body, many members. Um, I think the notion of prophecy as the Forth telling, not the not the predictive prophecy, but the forth telling of God's holy word, often in scripture involves the resuscitation of holy scripture. Um, the, have you not heard that the Lord has said and stuff like that? Um, and so I think the argument that prophecy can fulfill, and this might be getting to where I think John John DePue is getting at, and this actually be more of an eschatological or apocalyptic expectation, is that prophecy is the mechanism by which Paul conceived of how the word of God would move from church to church, from person to person, ultimately to the ends of the earth. The forth telling of God's holy word and what God has done in Christ as an announcement of the gospel. And therefore anyone can do that because there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit, variety of services or ministerial activities. Um, and the closest thing you get to a hierarchy in those sorts of things is potentially God is appointed to the church first apostles, and this is second or first Corinthians 12, uh, 27 through and following. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then deeds of power, then gifts of healing, forms of assistance, forms of leadership, various kinds of tongues. And nowhere is there a mentioning of the gender of the person that does that, which is why um, pneumatology and ecclesiology are very much tied together, at least in my thought, and which is why I made the point at the very beginning about New Testament theology being something I would use to support the idea of women. Uh, elders, pastors, bishops, ornates, all that. Um, so I think the aspect of prophecy as the forth telling of God's holy word fits because we have women prophets all over the place, number one. And number two, um, the idea of being given something that corresponds to God's revelation in scripture is something that I think is, I, I would argue, indisputable because it requires someone telling someone about it. That's what prophecy is, or at least in that sense. Um, and we also have women apostles like Junia, um, who's also, I think, Joanna in Luke's gospel, which that that one's fun. I'll, I'll trigger John. I want to hear John screaming at the camera. He probably agrees with me if he knows about it. Um, but, yeah, I, I think prophecy as a modern interpretation of the implementation of the pastoral role is, I think, really strong. And that's not just me and an egalitarian saying that. Um, and by complementarian, I mean, I believe the sexes complement each other. I don't affirm a hierarchy in relationships, either male or female or husband and wife or anything like that. But I, I do believe with the complementarians that we do complement each other. We're different. But I am an egalitarian when it comes to the relationships. And I think that's not me as egalitarian saying that prophecy is this. Most of my complementarian scholar friends actually concede the point. 
And they just go back to 1 Timothy 2.12 as kind of the linchpin of their argument, which we didn't talk too much about when rightly so, because it would take an hour to talk about. So I, I think I think he's right. I think that's a really, really strong argument um, that I could unpack further, but I'm, I'm curious to hear what Carl says. Wait, curious to hear what Carl says about what? About what I just said, or if you have any thoughts. Honestly, I don't really have any thoughts okay. at all. Yeah. Okay. There's, and even if I even if I did have thoughts, it would take way too long to go into it. If we're kind of on the edge of it as well, on the edge of wrapping this thing up as well. So oh. I'll just I'll leave it on that. And yeah, yeah, it's probably gonna wrap things up now. Uh, fun fun conversation. Uh, Nick and Carl, plug your stuff just just in case people don't know how to find you and what you guys are doing. Nick, you want to go first? No, that's all you, man. All right. So, um, so follow me on Instagram. It's Carl underscore has underscore not. I just did that. So it pops up. If I like one of your photos, it says Carl has not liked your photo. I think it's clever. I was 12 when I did it. Um, like I said, I'm a massive child. Follow me on TikTok. It's just, this isn't my, this isn't my fault. All one word and the same thing on YouTube. This isn't my fault. Um, if you like me and you want to, you know, buy me a coffee once a month, um, you can become a patron and I'd love you eternally which I already do. But that being said, I'm going to be, I'm going to make, be making ringtones for my Patreons at some point soon, which is going to be amazing. But <laughs> if I, if I ever get a freaking Patreon, that being said, um, Nick, all you send me your Patreon. Like I want to become one of your patrons. I want one of your ringtones. Um, so what do <laughs> I do? Um, so I wrote a book. I did. Yeah, I did write a book. Uh, <laughs> called The Perfection of Our Faithful Wills, where I try to outline what I think Paul's vision of entire sanctification is. Uh, if you're a Wesleyan or a Methodist or anything like that, that'll obviously set off interest. If not, you should buy the book anyway, because it's awesome. Um, I podcast occasionally uh, at what do I do? A Split Frame of Reference podcast with my wife. Uh, we have up to 40 episodes. Uh, it's specifically on this topic that Carl and I talked about on women in leadership. Um, so we go through all the passages and all the other stuff like that. Uh, the other one I do that's a little more fun, or I wouldn't say fun, a little more freewheeling is called the Synergists podcast. That's spelled the Sinner way, S-I-N-N-E-R-G-I-S-T. Uh, and we're currently doing stuff on atonement and what it means and what the death of Christ means. And so, um, and you can find me on Twitter uh, at Nick Quint, which is just my name and my last name. Uh so yeah, but you should definitely go follow, follow Carl. I followed Carl, and that was like the greatest thing I ever did until I deleted my uh, TikTok app off my phone because <laughs> I got I got I got so sucked into it. I was like, you know, I'm done. I'm done. I I, I have so no free time whatsoever. I'm so oh, sad. Oh uh, Carl's TikTok's got the best TikTok. Carl has Carl the best TikTok. TikTok's dropping like three billion into TikTok, like paying creators. So Carl's going to be too big league for us soon. So get that talk money, baby. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in, everyone. This is Ed here in Apologetics. If you enjoyed us, be sure to hit the subscribe button, like this video, and you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, all that stuff. And you can support us on Patreon if you enjoy the show. But that's it, Nick and Carl. It was a lot of fun, dude. Thank guys, dudes, whatever. Thanks for tuning in, guys. See ya.